This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've spoken with former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall, twice before on the Axe Files, once to share his own remarkable story, and a year ago to assess the nascent war in Ukraine. Well, a year has passed, and that war still rages, so I thought it was time to invite McFall back to assess where this weighty conflict stands and where it's headed. Here's that conversation. Ambassador Mike McFall, great to see you again. You, This is the third time you've been on this podcast. That's very, very rare. I think Nancy Pelosi may be the other. Wow. I know, the two most powerful people uh, in America. Or, But anyway, you know, a year ago, I asked you to come back because of the war in Ukraine, which now appears to be, it, it was in its infancy then. Right. We're now a year later. Um, and I really want to check back with you and see what calculations you're making now, what is different than uh, you anticipated. You were smart enough then not to predict when the thing would end. Uh, so that was very diplomatic of you. Glad you reminded me of that. Thank you. Yes, yes. Otherwise, I would have played the, the uh, audio for you. Yes. Well, there are many other audios you could play that predicted the results that got it wrong. So, Yeah. But tell me where you think we are. And what surprised you? So let's first, thanks for having me back, David. It's great to see you. Great to talk to you as always. Um, I think if we go back a year ago and you were listening to what Putin said he was planning to do, I think that's a good place to start. Like, what did he want to do? What has he accomplished? What has he not accomplished? And I, you know, I'm a close follower of Putin. Yes. And he, and he of you, by the way. And like, tragically, vice versa. You know, we met in 1991. I wrote a lot about him. You know, we in mm -hmm. the government with you, uh, we dealt with him. Remember that trip in, in 2009? Yeah. President yes. first met him when he was prime minister. And then I got banned from Russia in 2014. But, you know, I still follow what he says and does and still talk to our colleagues in the government. And I listened to his speech before he invaded. It was long. It was like 70 minutes long. I'll bet you I'm one of the only people that listened to the end, by the way. Uh, you don't want speeches that long, but he laid out what he wanted to do. Um, first, he said, I'm going to unite our Slavic sisters and brothers together. They were divided by the West, but divided by the Bolsheviks too, he said. I thought that was interesting. But, you know, Ukrainians aren't a separate nation. They're just Russians with accents. I'm going to bring them all together. Second, he's going to denazify Ukraine. Uh, that meant regime change against President Zelensky. Uh, to remind everybody, the democratically elected leader of mm -hmm. Ukraine, of Jewish heritage, that's the neo-Nazi he was going to overthrow. Third, demilitarize the country. Fourth, capture most of it, uh, you, you know, bring in parts of it uh, into Russia. And fifth, stop NATO expansion. Um, he had some other ones, but those are the big ones. So let's go through that list. What did he get done? What did he didn't? Uh, first, uniting Russians and Ukrainians as one nation, that's been a complete failure. Uh, Ukrainians today are more united as a nation. I think, I'm not a historian, but I think greater than any time in their history. Uh, you look at the popular support Zelensky has, an anti-Russian feeling, not just anti-Putin, by the way. Used to be anti-Putin, now it's anti-Russian. Failed at that. Denazification obviously failed at that. Zelensky is still in power. Demilitarization. Ukraine's more militarized today than in any uh, chapter in their history. Fourth, lost the battle of Kiev. Third, I'm on third. Lost the battle of Kiev. Lost the battle of Kharkiv. Uh, took over Kherson, but then lost Kherson. That's a city in the south. Um, 
50% of territory that he once occupied, he now doesn't occupy. So the, that campaign has not gone well. And then finally, NATO expansion, you know, uh, Finland and Sweden are seeking to join. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that wasn't happened before. So that's the good news. The bad news, thinking about where we're at right now, is it is a kind of trench warfare, stalemated uh, uh, war. Um, you know, they're slaughtering each other. I mean, the Russians are losing higher numbers around the city in Bakhmut, but it's, you know, inches, the, the you know, the battlefield moves by inches or yards or what's the right, kilometers, but not many kilometers. It's been basically stuck for several months. And that makes me nervous. That makes me nervous about the ability of the Ukrainians to hold on and to keep us engaged in the long haul. Well, that uh, isn't that Putin's calculation? Uh, I mean, one thing the Russians are good at uh, historically is long sieges and suffering. Uh, that's sort of endemic to the history. Yes. Um, you know, I notice he and you condemned him for it, compared it to the Battle of Stalingrad. That was yes. the, a, a lengthy battle, the bloodiest in the history of, of the war, World War yes. II. Um, that's a mindset, you know, that yes. we're just going to hunker down. And he obviously is counting on um, the world kind of losing interest. Yes. Well, you're right. And he did invoke Stalingrad purposely because... Uh, he wants his people to believe that he's not fighting Ukrainians in Ukraine. He's fighting the West. He's fighting NATO, the United States. That's what Russian TV says today. This is a battle between Russia and the United States. Ukrainians are just kind of in between, right? It's a proxy war. And he wants to invoke what they call the Great Patriotic War, right? We call it World War II, the last time that the West invaded uh, the whole land. That, that imagery he wants to create. And you know, Stalingrad was horrible. I, I actually went to the 70th anniversary of the Battle of Stalingrad when I was ambassador. Uh, Putin was there too. Um, we didn't have the seats together, but we were in the same event. Uh, and it just, the numbers are mind boggling, right? That they just kept throwing soldiers into that fight uh, because Stalin didn't care about people and Putin doesn't either. If you look at the numbers around Bakhmut, just doesn't care about his people, right? It's just, it's clear that's today. the battle that's going on right now. Right. That's the city that there's, you know, they've surrounded the Ukrainians. That's the one, that's where most of the fighting right now is taking place. But David, you know, it it's clear. In fact, let me tell you one more anecdote. The, the, the week I left Moscow was the week that Putin invaded the first time. That was February, 2014. Uh, that's when he took Crimea. That's when he went in with the soldiers to help these separatists in eastern Ukraine. And I was, you know, I was doing my courtesy calls and, and I met with one person very close to Putin who I did, you know, he's like kind of my main interlocutor when I was ambassador. And we had this long philosophical conversation about East versus West and Ukraine. And at the end of the night, he said to me, he said, Mike, one thing you got to remember. First, we care more about Ukraine than you do. And second, to your point, David, you guys have short attention spans in the West in, and you Americans. We don't. We can stay for the long haul. And I, I think about that conversation every time because that's exactly what Putin is counting on now. He's going to stay as as long as it takes. Uh, and and he believes he has the, the soldier power, the manpower to do it. We'll come back to that. I'm not so sure he does. But he's really counting on us to, you know, to lose interest and say, you know, why are we fighting there anyway? Why are we helping them fight? We're not fighting there. That's kind of a a vulnerability of democracies. Yes. That, uh, you know, authoritarian countries don't have. You know, we put these things up for votes through the people that we elect and politicians get nervous. And you can see already, Mike, in our politics, you saw Ron DeSantis, who was a hawk on Ukraine when he was in Congress. Why aren't we arming Ukraine more now saying, you know, we really should be, why are we more worried about their borders than our borders? You know, obviously Trump is in the full Tucker Carlson yes. uh, column uh, against the war, sort of the pro-Putin rhetoric and so on. So, and polls do so show some softening yes. uh, of uh, American support. You said a couple of weeks ago 
there was a window to try and move this war and the window was closing how much of a window is there and what does ha- what has to happen to change the dynamic and jolt this out of the stalemate that it appears to be right now well first on the on the domestic politics side of course you're the expert I'm not so um I won't comment on that other than to say this period does remind me of of a earlier isolationist period I'm writing about uh, a big book about origins of the Cold War and how to deal with China and Russia today. But it starts at the beginning of our republic, David, which is why I won't finish for, you know, <laughs> years to come. But uh, that was a giant mistake to start back that, that early. <laughs> but, you know, we we said similar things in the 30s, right? That war over there, why do we care about, you know, human rights violations over there? That's 39, 40 and that really didn't work out too well for us. It did not, but it took the attack on Pearl Harbor before we got in. Right. Yes, and the and the and Hitler's miscalculation of supporting uh, declaring war on the US in concert with the Japanese, you know, that gave uh Roosevelt the opening to right. uh, enter the war. He for years was trying to lay the groundwork and facing great resistance. He did. And I I'm invoking that so that we can learn from the mistakes of our past rather than repeating them. Uh, because I think there's a real paradox in the debate about our national security right now, which is, you know, there is this softening among some, particularly in the Republican Party, as I read, that why should we care about what happens in Europe? The real fight is China, Taiwan. Uh, but I think people have to understand that these things are interrelated. Uh, if Putin wins in Ukraine, that will embolden Xi Jinping as he thinks about invading Taiwan. But conversely, if he loses in Ukraine, that will make him think harder about invading Taiwan. And I was just in Taiwan five months ago. Let me tell you, the, the group of people cheerleading the loudest for the Ukrainians to win are is President Tsai, is her foreign minister, defense minister, because they understand that. And somehow this, this notion that we can look weak in Europe and, and yet, yet we're going to be strong against China. I, I just think is a misreading of how those things are related. Well, let me ask you about that. Since, since you're there, there's a lot of speculation now about what the Chinese are going to do. Tony Blinken, uh, our former colleague, now Secretary of State, did what I thought was a rel- uh, you know an unusual thing by uh, revealing what was obviously intelligence that the Chinese were thinking about giving lethal assistance to yes. the Russians. First of all, where do you think that is at just from a distance? And what kind of difference would that make? And if what you're saying is true and a loss for Russia would be discouraging to the Chinese relative to Taiwan, does China feel some, a stake in in Russia's success in uh, Russian right. success there? Yeah. And I want to get back to your breakthrough question. We'll do that in a second, but let's Talk about this piece, because I think it's very important. One, you're absolutely right. For Secretary Blinken to say what he did, for Vice President Harris to say what she did at the Munich Security Conference, where they revealed this intelligence, alleged intelligence, I should say, because I haven't seen it. Um, I was actually in the room when she said it in Munich, and it was shocking to everybody, uh, because normally you would want to do that behind closed doors. Exactly. I think that says a little bit about how our communications with Beijing are not so great right now but it was a it was a it was a bold statement and now the Chinese have said you know prove it we're not doing that so maybe it's working uh, I, I you know we can't see it but you my you know I know that this group of people pretty well just like you I don't think they would have said that if it wasn't something disturbing oh no and listen I think they've already demonstrated the fact that they're willing to use intelligence in ways that previous administrations may not have, because they were very open about the intelligence they had suggesting that the Russians were going to invade exactly. and were going to try and take Kiev. So they've sort of proven their mettle on this. Right. But to come back to your question about Xi Jinping in Beijing, and I don't, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on China, although I've spent the last several years trying to get smarter on China. Uh, I can't go to Russia, so I go to China, David. And um, Yeah. So you get kicked out of there. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I, it's coming, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but um, I do think, of course, Xi Jinping signed up with this guy, Vladimir Putin. Uh, they're the autocrats against the, the liberal democratic world. They are, and I, and I don't mean to sound flippant, I think 
U.S., I mean, Russia-Chinese relations today are closer than any time. You know, I think you got to go back to the Chinese revolution in 49, and that honeymoon didn't last very long, right? Mao and Stalin split pretty quickly. So it's real. Yeah. I should just interrupt you for a second and say that was Kissinger's whole strategic thrust was to try and break up that alliance and make right. sure that it, it wasn't close. And right. that was the whole impetus behind Nixon to China. Yep. And and it worked. I mean, the split took ahead. It happened before he got there, but he exacerbated it. And I think that was very wise. I think it's unwise for us to push them together today. But before the war in Ukraine, lots of smart people in Washington said we should peel away the Russians. I never thought that was possible because, you know, to do what? To join us? Putin's not going to join us. I do think we should not push the Chinese uh, you know, so close to the Russians. And and I think we should be smarter about, A, trying to stop them from providing military assistance. That's great. But B, we want Putin to lose and we want Xi Jinping to learn the lessons of that. We don't want Xi Jinping to help Putin win. And A, because I think it sends a signal to the world that we put all this money in, we backed him and our guy still loses, right? President Zelensky. That's a bad signal, not just to Beijing, but to you know, the four dozen, five dozen countries around the world that are kind of sitting on the sidelines, right? The Indians, the South Africans, mm-hmm. the Israelis, we're just saying, you know, we don't, we don't want to take sides in this war. Uh, we want them to take sides and, and therefore we need to help Ukraine win. And, and by the way, the American people like winners too, David, I don't need to tell you, but I think winning on the battlefield um, and there's data to sh- show this uh, from when the Ukrainians went on the offensive. Yeah. When they're winning, American support went up. When it's a stalemate, American support faded. Right. And this is going to come to a head in the summer because right now Biden is drawing on resources that were already provided by Congress. Yes. But those resources are going to expire at some point. And there'll be a big debate. Yes. As as to what to do next. So back to the original question, and I yes. apologize because I'm the one who keeps leading us far afield. No, this is a good question. But how much time do we have and what do you think needs to be done? Because there's this interesting thing where Biden has been incrementally kind of lifting our commitment, trying carefully not to get us uh, too enmeshed so that we're in direct conflict with Russia. Yes. But- You've said, I've seen you quoted, you, you, you think that incrementalism is bad strategy here. Yeah. Well, let me start from the beginning. I give a ton of credit to President Biden and his team putting together the coalition uh, to provide military assistance, economic assistance, and sanctions. Uh, a year ago, David, I would have never predicted that we would have had this much unity uh, and we would providing this much equipment and the kind of equipment we're providing, right? Howitzers, HIMARS, these long-range missile systems. Patriot missiles. Patriots yeah. now. This is incredible. And I give them a lot of credit for what they've done so far. Yeah, I mean, it, just, it wasn't long ago that we were talking about NATO as this kind of a toothless tiger. Exactly. And and it was kind of. And had Mr. Trump been reelected, I'm not sure NATO could have survived for more years of him. He, he had no interest in the, in the alliance. Well, it might be that Ukraine couldn't have survived either. Correct. I think, you know, I think it's a major achievement that we're where we are. That said, I'm a professor here at Stanford. Uh, you know, Biden administration, you get an A on the midterm, uh, but, but the quarter's not over. <laughs> so you got to you got to keep performing to the end. And nobody nobody remembers who was winning the war in the first year. They remember who won the war in the last year. And, and, I, and I think if you accept that analysis, then I think they got to do more. I don't think incrementalism is the right strategy. Number one, because the Ukrainians don't believe time is on their side. Uh, you know, I talk to Ukrainians every day. You know, what I hear in their voice, including President Zelensky and his team, is urgency, right? When they hear uh, Western officials say, we're going to be with you as long as it takes. That's what I was in Munich at the security conference, and I, I, it seemed like all the talk, talking points were coordinated because they all use that same phrase. Uh, the Ukrainians that I was sitting in the audience with, they focus on the word long. They don't want a long war because they don't think they can sustain a long war. One, because they're going to run out of soldiers. 
And two, they're worried they're going to run out of support from the West. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And now back to the show. This is so paradoxical because the reason that Biden and all those diplomats are saying for as long as it takes is that they're trying to send a message to Putin that he's not going to outweigh them. Right. But the Ukrainians you're saying are hearing it differently. They are more realistic about what the timetable needs to be. They're not as certain that Biden is going to be able to maintain this level of support indefinitely. Exactly. When they hear U.S. officials talk about a war that goes years and years, they get very nervous. Now, not publicly, right? Let's be clear. Publicly, they got to say the, the right things. And, you know, President Zelensky is brilliant at messaging, in my opinion. But privately, they worry about A, their capacity and B, support from the West. And therefore, they think this is a critical year, and, you know, some kind of counteroffensive to break what the Russians have in the north from Crimea, right? That's what everybody says. Because of supply lines. Yeah, they want to cut it off, right? They want to cut Crimea off from Donbass. Now, when everybody says that's what they're going to do, I get a little skeptical. I wonder, is that what they're wanting us to believe or is that what they're really going to do? But my sense is that they feel like they need to do something. And so my argument is give them everything. Go all in, you know? Give them the long-range missile systems called the Attackums. I think that's a critical weapon system that could help them uh, with this counteroffensive. Give them jets. You know, if you don't want to give them our jets, give them more MiG-29s that our NATO partners have. Um, give them Reapers, armed, you know, um, weapon systems that can, can can go over these trenches and 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 bomb. And I'm not, I want to be, I don't want to pretend to be a general, even on your podcast. I'm not a general. I, I talk to a lot of them, but the the the, the concept is just Big bang now, don't, not this creeping incrementalism. And also believe, and here I disagree with some of my colleagues in the, in the Biden administration, that their worries about the threat of escalation with Vladimir Putin, uh, they've amplified that too much. Um, you know, he really doesn't have an escalatory move besides one, which is a nuclear weapon, right? Everything else, he's all in. You know, when you talk to Ukrainians, they say, Hey, Mike, it feels like he's escalated. You know, he's bombing us every day. He's killing yeah. a lot of our people. This feels pretty escalatory. It's not like he's got some secret weapon that he's, you know, holding in reserve for the, you know, the final push. He's all in with his conventional. So then it's just this one weapon. And, and I, well, yeah, well, that's kind of a big card, you know, it's a big card and it's a scary card. And I don't want to pretend I know with certainty what Putin would do if he feels like he's losing. But I also don't want to pretend that others that that predict with certainty that he would use a nuclear weapon 
uh, understand Putin better than I do. You know, maybe our, our former colleague, Bill Burns does, right? The head of the CIA. Russia expert. Russia expert. Putin expert, yeah. Brilliant guy, great colleague, runs the CIA now. But that, that's an assessment that's hard to make. Everybody jumps to, if Putin begins to lose, he's going to nu- use a nuclear weapon. And I just want to challenge that hypothesis, not by saying I know, but I want to say two things. One, it's a really costly step. People think that he's going to use a nuclear weapon and the Ukrainians are just going to lay down and, and sue for peace. No way. This is not Japan 1945. Uh, the Ukrainians will, will double down and triple down. They're not going to quit and capitulate because they use a nuclear weapon. Number two, right now, Putin's got a lot of people on the sidelines around the world, including Xi Jinping. He uses a nuclear weapon. He becomes a pariah, even for the Chinese. And the Chinese have actually been very direct about that. They have. They have. And, you know, don't forget, nobody, if you don't have a nuclear weapon, you don't like the nuclear powers already. You most certainly don't like if they use them. And, and finally, I'm not even sure generals in Putin's army would go along with that, uh, let alone society. I, I just think he's got to worry about that if he did use a nuclear weapon. And then on our side, if he did use it, God forbid, yeah. then what he's getting right now, right now, remember, he's deterring us from giving certain weapon systems by threatening to do it very rationally. He, he's deterring us from providing certain offensive systems. If he uses it, we're no longer deterred, right? So we can, we can give him jets and attack him. We got nothing to lose. So I hope what I don't know, does Putin see it the same way I do? But that's the way I see that. Thing. Yeah, let's crawl into his head a little bit. From what you can see and what you know, what is his state of mind? And I mean, he's in so deep now. He's in so deep. I mean, how does he get out in, in yeah. a way that leaves him in his power intact, uh, his prestige within the country intact? Yeah, hard question. And I don't, I don't want to pretend I know with certainty. I've known Putin for a long time, but we're not exactly Facebook friends. So, I, you mm-hmm. know, not asking me and chatting with me anymore. Although you might be surprised that some of the people around him who still keep in touch with me, David. I'll come back to that later. I would say a couple of things. So first, he was shocked. Now, that will piss him off, by the way. Yes, but go ahead. Well, that's he, You know, he, he's a regular listener of the Axe Files. So anyway, go ahead. Well, a couple of things. So one is he and the people around him, you know, they were shocked by how bad their armed forces did in Ukraine. They thought this was going to be shock and awe. They'd be downtown Kiev in you know a few days, and this was all going to be over. Uh, they had a giant intelligence failure, and you see fights about it, right? They the, the 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 FSB as they're called, they're kind of the rough equivalent of our FBI, but that's not even right. They're just the internal intelligence folks. Remember, Ukraine is not considered a foreign country, so their CIA equivalent, it's called the SVR, is not really in charge of Ukraine. And that group got it wrong. And you know who's really pissed off about them, about that? The generals, right? Because mm-hmm. the generals are the ones that went in with, with bad I- intelligence. So that Putin is shocked by how bad it's been. And then he was shocked by the- A little like Iraq, by the way, but go ahead. Yes. you know, welcome, And he was shocked by, they did not welcome him you know, with flowers and liberation. I think he yes, believed that intelligence too. Remember, there's, there's millions of Russian speakers in Ukraine, right? And he just assumed if you speak Russian, you support Russia. Well, they don't. Uh, they're Ukrainians. They speak Russian, but they're, they're, they identify as citizens of Ukraine. He, so he got that whole group wrong. As you pointed out, Zelensky, Zelensky's first language was Russian. Yes. And he was someone from Eastern uh, Ukraine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. When I hosted him here at Stanford a couple of years ago, we spoke Russian uh, the whole time here. Um, He's a very funny guy, too. Let's come back to Zelensky if we have time. Yeah, you asked me about Putin. So he had to, you know, and then the counteroffensives, those were shockers, too, right? Where they lost all that territory in the fall. Today, however, I hear, and I, you know, I just gave a big speech a few days ago. I see him at a different spot. One, as we've already talked about, he's prepared to stay there as long as it takes, and he doesn't care about people dying. And he doesn't face voters back in Russia, right? As you rightly pointed out. Right. That's a difference between a a democratically elected leader and a dictator. And number two, he thinks that he can fight until he takes the territories that he declared on paper to be part of Russia. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's Crimea, which he took, you know, 
2014, and then four regions of Eastern Ukraine. And in a big fanfare event at the Kremlin, he signed a piece of paper saying these four regions are now part mm-hmm. of Russia. By the way, their maps of Russia already include those four regions as part of the map of Russia. And I think he's going to just fight until he gets to those borders. And, and if we measure that in probably years, I don't see him stopping unless he runs out of ammunition and, you know, soldiers. But I think that's, that's his game plan up to now. However, one thing I wanted to add, that's what I, you know, if I'm asked to give my prediction, that's what I think he's going to do. Um, but if let's say, you know, the counter, the Ukrainian counteroffensive goes well, and he feels like he's on the run and the Ukrainians start hitting targets inside Crimea, then, and that's really where the definition of losing comes in. If, if you're losing Crimea, that's when Putin's in trouble. Um, but remember he lives in a dictatorship, so he could he could literally get on TV tomorrow night and say, you know, citizens of Russia, we won the war in Ukraine. Here's what I did. I remember those Russians in Donbass that were threatened by the Nazis. I defended them. I protected them. They are liberated today. Number two, they were going to try to take Crimea. I stopped it. And number three, the war, you know, he's been telling this for months. NATO was going to invade our country. I took the fight to them in Ukraine and I stopped them in Ukraine so they didn't make it to Beograd. And so now I'm declaring victory. Um, and by the way, and this is something I know in Kiev they worry about. If he thought about doing that, he would call some other leaders in Europe, right? Prime ministers and presidents and say, you know what? I'll stop fighting today if you can stop that crazy guy in Kiev from fighting. And we'll just freeze the war and and the war will end. And there will be voices in Europe who say, okay, I'm going to help you make it. Well, and that the the Chinese proposal was something exactly to that. So uh, this goes back to your point about what needs to be provided, Ukraine, because those long-range missiles would really allow them to reach into Crimea and do a lot of damage uh, to the Russian supply lines. And uh, I mean, that... From a strategic standpoint, that seems critical. I think so. I mean, I, I think that even threatening, David, like invading Crimea, that's a, and retaking it, that's a really big military operation, right? Uh, again, from people are more expert than I, but threatening, having Russians on that bridge back to, you know, Russia, uh, the, the psychological effect that Crimea is under threat. That's the definition of losing for Putin. And, and I, again, I don't want to pretend I know how to predict. I'm just saying he has more options than just using a nuclear weapon if, if, if he faces that situation. I think he, could, he has different options uh, that, that may be actually harder for Zelensky to accept. That's the next thing I wanted to get to. You are close to Zelensky. You do know how he thinks, and you're close to people around him. He also has a challenge here. Because he has uh, rallied his nation to resist this invasion, uh, he at some point he could come under pressure uh, from allies who are supplying him to come to some kind of accommodation. Yes, and coming to accommodation may be very, very difficult for him, both politically and probably emotionally. Yes, at this point, when you see your people being slaughtered. Yes, yes. So. A couple of comments. Early in the war, just weeks into the war, I think it was March of last year. Um, I don't know if I told you this anecdote the last time, but it, it, it was very memorable to me. You know, I interact with his team pretty often. I was about to, I like, now I'm talking to Axel. Oh, no, no. You told, you told me that, this was this the speech you made where you were supposed to be briefed by one of his people and he ended up on the... Right, right. But maybe I, the part that was really interesting, just to show you how sophisticated they are, uh, this was a, a speech to the Democratic members of Congress. Yeah, Pelosi right. had invited me, and the speaker the next day was uh, President Biden, and they timed that you know brilliantly to work me up. So they're very smart about that stuff. But the other thing he told me in in that conversation, and subsequently his chief of staff, uh, Andre Yermak, I, I mm-hmm. talked to him a lot because 
and coordinate uh, ideas about sanctions. You know, before the slaughter in Bucha and Mariupol, right, where they were, they just, they just, you, we, we all know these horrific scenes. You know, negotiating a deal around some borders might have been possible, but but because of the way that Putin has fought this war and killed so many innocent people, right, uh, kidnapped kids. He just rolled out a kid at his big rally. Yeah. We could go, you know, that was kidnapped from Mariupol. That makes it harder to negotiate with those guys. And, and Zelensky will tell you that his team will tell you that. And that, that's why it is a democratic society. And he's, he can't just declare, you know, this is what I think is in our best interests. And that's going to be hard to, it's going to be hard to negotiate with Putin for President Zelensky. You mentioned the vice president uh, at the uh, at the Munich conference and some of the president's comments back last year uh, after we spoke. The president went to Poland and at the end of his speech he ad libbed a line and the line was how, how it was something like how on earth can this man stay in power right and I was thinking about our previous conversation and the deep paranoia that Putin has that Americans are really basically about regime change all over the world. How do you think that comment landed? And did it, you know, did it harden his attitude or maybe his attitude was already so hardened it didn't matter? And and now these condemnations, which are fundamentally legitimate, that they are guilty of crimes against humanity. How, how do these play with Putin and how does it affect his judgments and calculation? It's a great question. I don't have a great answer. My guess is that it just confirms his hypotheses about us, even going back to when I was ambassador, where he most certainly thought that, you know, Barack Obama, President Obama sent me to Moscow to orchestrate the revolution against him. And, you know, David, I'll tell you honestly, he was running for president back then, this 2012. And I used to deal with people that that admired you, just so you know. They thought they were the David Axelrods of of presidential uh, campaigns in Russia. One guy in particular, I don't want to name him because it might get him in trouble. But I remember I went to see him and, you know, Putin's running for re-election and there are massive demonstrations on the streets against him. And they're blaming us for that, right? And blaming Secretary Clinton uh, for sending a signal to these demonstrators. And I went to see him, you know, I'd just gotten there. But this is a guy I've known for a long time. And he said, Mike, uh, don't overreact to all the negative stuff we're going to put on TV about you. Uh, you know, we're friends, you know, we, we all know how elections work, right? You know, don't, don't overreact. No big deal, but you are manna from heaven for our campaign right now. Cause we're going to run this play, right. you know, like here he is. And you know, that they was cynical and they did, they accused me of all kinds of things. And then they said, it'll, you know, once we win the election, it'll, calm down and it didn't really calm down. And when, by the time I left Moscow, the campaign manager for Putin, you know, I don't think he believed this crazy stuff about us out to get him, but I left thinking, no, Putin actually does believe it. Uh, he's super paranoid. He thinks the CIA can do all kinds of things against him. Uh, and uh, there's no, there's been no evidence since then, you know, this is eight, eight or 10 years ago that would lead him to believe that we're not. So tragically, that makes him a much more paranoid figure inside Russia. By the way, the, the president who we uh, met with when I traveled with you in 2009, Medvedev, Med, you say everybody, Medvedev, yes. Medvedev, yes. You know, he and Obama did some big things together, including the New START Treaty, which has now been suspended. And Putin came back and reclaimed the presidency. Medvedev, say it again. Medvedev. Yes. Even I have a hard time saying it. But he is now probably as bellicose as any yes. public figure yeah. in Russia about this war. Yeah. He's a very pathetic figure. He's just completely changed, David. You know, he was sincere in working with us on things of common interest, like the New START Treaty sanctions on Iran, supplying our troops in Afghanistan. We did a lot of things that were good for the American people with him. Uh, and then he went really far, you know, when we, our government, had assessed that Gaddafi was going to slaughter all kinds of people in Benghazi. 
and we thought we needed to use force to stop him. Medvedev agreed with us on that. That was amazing. Uh, I was actually in the room with now President Biden, then Vice President Biden. We went to see him in March of 2011 in the Kremlin to try to get him to go along with us, and he did. And we were shocked. I was completely shocked. Yeah, Putin was not pleased. And he wasn't pleased, and he made that clear. And I think that was the end of, of Medvedev's political career. But as a as a survivor, Medvedev has now calculated that he has to be to the right of everybody because I think he still has some dreams that he might still have a political future there. Uh, but it's really, there's no way he can believe the, the crazy stuff he says. I, I still, from time to time, interact with people that know him. And, you know, it's one thing when people say crazy things out uh, that they that they believe, you know, I have some, you know, extended family members that are, you know, hardcore Trump supporters and they believe the things they say to me. Uh, but it's a quite another thing when you, you, you know, that that's all crazy. Maybe it's on my mind right now, given the news, but you know, you know, it's all crazy, but you say it anyway for some other ulterior motive. Medvedev's definitely in that second category. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. You mentioned your work on sanctions. You have a uh, sort of an international group that is advising on sanctions, uh, advising governments in the alliance, communicating with uh, the Ukrainians. These have been withering, these sanctions, but you don't feel withering enough. Yes. Just to be clear, our group is a, I'm the coordinator and it's called the International Working Group on Russian Sanctions. And it can, it's comprised of Americans, Europeans, including Ukrainians, even some Russians, by the way, mm-hmm. living in exile. Um, sometimes in Ukraine, they talk about it as the Yermak McFall Working Group. Yermak's the chief of staff. Mm-hmm. I can't control the way they, uh, uh, you know, describe it, but I want to just be clear: we're we're independent. No, because if you could, then it would be the McFall Yermak. Hey, exactly. Group. Yes. yes. M does come before Y, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> But but we are what we're trying to do, David, is we write papers um, to try to push the envelope of 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 creative thinking. And and like with military assistance, if you look at where the debates were on sanctions a year ago, I give a ton of credit to the Biden administration, but especially to the European Union. Yeah. Or they've come. It's great. A, you get an A, especially, you know, what they've done on energy. But we believe uh, which because they rely so much on Russia for energy, so it's uh, it's they they're making a much more of a sacrifice, also a big sacrifice on refugees. Yes, great point. Thank you for reminding yeah. me. Millions of Ukrainians, you know, especially the Poles, have done just amazing sacrifice, economic sacrifice to help support the war, and we should applaud that. And at the same time, that is true, and it also is true we should do more. So in the same respect that I think we just should go all in on, on the military stuff, I think we should go all in on sanctions. No more. And in- real quick, what, what are the sanctions that would you think would really have an impact? Because these sanctions have been very, very strong, and yet they haven't really impacted Russia's behavior. Are there sanctions that you think could actually impact Russia's behavior? So great question. I'm not optimistic that we can change Putin's behavior, right? Usually sanctions are designed to get a country, a president or a government to change their behavior. Uh, we should try, but I want to reduce his capacity to fight the war in Ukraine. So that's not changing his behavior. That's limiting his, his capabilities, right? That's a different strategy. So on the top of that list is tighter controls of technology imports into Russia. Technology that makes his bombs smart, we want to make them stupid. High, highest on the list. Second, reduce the revenue that they get from exporting oil and gas. Right now, there's a price cap at $60 for oil. We would like to make it 30. Uh, so we're not cutting it off. We don't want to, that would be too disruptive. We just want the revenues that he gains to go down. Third, declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. We have a law in the United States 
that does that. And when that happens, it has all kinds of things that it cuts off automatically. Uh, right now, we have four countries on that list. Uh, Cuba is on that list, David, if you can believe it. Uh, if Cuba's on the list, how can Russia not be on that list? And fourth, I, might, I could go on to 62. You don't need to be too ready. big to make the list. Is that the idea? Too big to fail? Too big to fail. And it's too complicated. Yeah. Last one on my list. And this is more political. We in the West brilliantly froze about $360 billion of Russian reserves of the Russian Central Bank held you know, in hard currencies in Europe, United States, Canada. I and we, our group, we want to transfer that money to Ukraine. A, because Ukraine needs it. They need $5 billion a year. Why should my mom and dad in Montana, taxpayers, pay for Ukrainian budgetary uh, you know, support? Uh, when we have hundreds of billions of Russian money sitting here, let's give that to them. So I think, and the you know the Biden folks think that's too radical. Uh, and a, I don't think it's too radical. And b, I think it'd be really politically wise for them mm-hmm. that now, rather than be forced by Republican colleagues down the road to do it later. I can't help but think, as you were speaking, whether the about whether the uh, Chinese sent that balloon over Montana to see what your parents were up to. But um, lots of jokes in Montana about that balloon, that's for sure. You know, you political scientists always have these theoretical debates. There's a political scientist at the institution with which I'm affiliated, John Mearsheimer. Yes. Who, uh, you know, has been pretty outspoken lately in suggesting that the U.S. actually provoked this by encouraging countries to join NATO and encroaching basically on the sort of Russian sphere of influence or former Soviet sphere of influence to the point where Putin, paranoid as he is, but Putin felt threatened. I got this question the other day at a, uh, a speech I was making from someone who was quoting Mearsheimer. And I think I reacted badly because I'm so moved by the brutality of what Putin's doing and what, and I'm moved by the meaning of you know what it means to have a country tramp over sovereign borders and essentially try and gobble up another country. Yeah. But uh, as you point out, they don't consider Ukraine another country. What do you think when you hear those arguments? And, and how much validity is there that we misplayed this in the 90s and the 2000s and we were too welcoming and didn't anticipate this? So it's a big, hard question, but but fundamentally, I think John Mersheimer is wrong. Uh, I've debated him and written articles with him, uh, not with him, <laughs> together. Um, and and I, I'd say a few things. We, you know, lots of details, but I'd say a, a few things. Number one, for, to that question about the 90s, let me tell you, I was just with a, a bunch of Estonians and Lithuanians and Poles in the Munich Security Conference, and, you know, they they would say if they were on the call with us, thank you that you did expand NATO because you know the countries that Putin's not invading are the NATO countries. He's got his soldiers in Georgia. He's got his soldiers in Moldova. He's now killing Ukrainians in Ukraine. He's never once touched a country that joined NATO. So the idea that this is a bad decision, that there's a lot of Estonians that would radically disagree. Second, managing relations between NATO and Russia and the Soviet Union before it has always been a complicated issue. But but John, Professor Mersheimer wants you to believe that it was always confrontational and we pushed and pushed and pushed and then Putin just had to invade Ukraine as a reaction. The history is very different, David. Use Putin as my, you know, believe Putin, not me. Uh, after the first wave of expansion, there was this Russian guy in 2000 that said, well, I think we should join NATO. His name was Vladimir Putin. Uh, John doesn't want you to remember that fact, but that's what Putin was saying about NATO back then. Um, 2002, he said, if Ukraine joins NATO, no big deal. I don't care. You know why he was saying that? Because he was cooperating with President Bush in the fight on terrorism. It wasn't just this con- you know, confrontation all the way. It was more like this, right? And David, when we and I were in government, um, uh, in 2010, 60% of Russians, and I write about this in my book, if people want to look it up, because it's called From Cold War to a Hot Peace. I have the data there. Um, social scientists, data matters to me. 60% of Russians had a positive feeling about the United States of America. Uh, 
And over 55, over 50% of Americans had a positive view of Russia back then. And, and so at that moment in history, you know, President Obama working with President Medvedev, NATO expansion wasn't an issue at all. In fact, David, you and I were there together because I, I have this great Pete Souza photo of us. We are at the Lisbon NATO summit yes, together. Yes. You were there. We're, and, and, you know, your listeners don't need to believe me. Just go look up President Medvedev's speech in 2010 at the NATO summit. He's there where he said, all of this conflict we had from before, it's over. So as a social scientist, there's got to be something else to the story. It just can't be NATO because we it's been up and down. And I think what Professor Mersheimer and others miss is Putin's really threatened by democracy. He's not, NATO is maybe a proxy for that, but it was the democratic revolution in Ukraine in 2014 that threatened him. Uh, there's been no progress, virtually no progress in Ukraine joining NATO. You got to go back to 2008 in the Bucharest summit. Uh, I hosted Zelensky here the day after he saw President Biden. And he's like, Mike, I'm new to politics here, but I don't understand. You guys all say you want us in NATO, but you do nothing to bring us into NATO. It was not a burning issue in, in mm -hmm. 14 or most certainly not 2022. Whether it should have been or not, it's a different question. It was the democracy. It was mm -hmm. that, you know, Slavic people speaking Russian and Ukrainian, practicing democracy. That's the real threat to Vladimir Putin. I was uh, with you uh, and the president when you introduced us to people who were fighting to build civil society in Russia. Yes. yes. Uh, when we were there in 2000. table, I remember that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, some of them no longer with us. Yes. Murder, murdered at the hands of uh, Putin. Worse than himself. 2018, yes. he was killed. He was at that meeting. Yes. Probably the most uh, imposing of Putin's potential opponents. Yes. Um, you Later, when uh, you introduced me to Vladimir Karamurza, uh, a protege of Nemtsov, who is now in, in prison yes. in uh, Russia, I guess awaiting trial or sentencing. Yes, I forget, but he's not I don't know. At any time soon, yeah. Yeah, just a valiant guy, wrote for the, has written for the Washington Post, continues to somehow get messages out. And Alexei Navalny, who I did not meet in prison, that civil society that you talked about, that you were helping to promote, that you were interested in, in supporting, is very, very much under threat yes. today. And I'm just wondering how you personally feel, given your investment, your emotional investment, in people like Nemtsov and in, in, in people like Vladimir Karamurza? Well, let me speak as a social scientist first and then Mike McFall, yeah. friends of these yeah, people I, second. Yeah, I was asking the human being, but you can speak as a well, social scientist Well, but they're related well. because, because yes. I, I think there's a narrative sometimes and it's grown because of this horrible barbaric war being carried out by Russians, not just Putin himself, that that. Russia's always been this way and they're all evil and, and same as it ever was. And, uh, you know, there's continuity in Russian history over centuries. Right. And there's, there's some truth to that. It's not completely wrong, but I, I've lived in Russia and dealt with Russians at different times that were more pro-democratic and, and believed in these values. And we're trying to build democracy. And at the end of the nineties, you mentioned, we talked about them soft. Remember, David, he was the heir apparent to Boris mm -hmm. Yeltsin. Uh, he was being groomed to run for president in 2000. This is mm -hmm. lots of evidence shows this. And then there was this financial crash in 1998 and Russia was still a democracy. So the people in the government got, yeah, got pushed out. And that's how Putin became president, right? It was mm -hmm. this accident of history. It wasn't some groundswell populist movement for Putin. Mm -hmm. It was, he was the only guy that they could get through that wouldn't let the communists take over. Um, and I just say that because had Nemtsov become president, had the financial crash, which by the way, started in Thailand, it didn't even start in Russia. So we call these exogenous shocks in political science, right? So had it, had it, it happened two years later, um, Nemtsov had become president, this history would have been very different. Uh, no way would they be invading Ukraine today. In fact, Boris Nemtsov, he used to always tell me, the most important thing, Mike, you guys can do to help Democrats in Russia is to help democracy succeed in Ukraine, right? 
So that's the first thing. We, we can't buy into the Putin narrative that this is the way all Russians think and this, he mm-hmm. was destined to be leader. On a personal level, it's, it's, it's tragic, of course. I mean, I know Navalny. Uh, his daughter goes to school here, David, at Stanford, by the way. I, I, we're friends with her. And his, I just saw his wife a few weeks ago. Karl Muzai, you mentioned, he's an old friend. I used to see him always with Boris Nemtsov. They would come see me at the White House uh, when we worked together there. Uh, Ilya Yashin is another friend of mine, just put in jail eight and a half years for telling the truth about Buchan. Uh, it's heavy and it's hard because they're, they're, they're living under really, they've sacrificed everything for ideals that I share. And I sometimes feel pretty helpless sitting here in Palo Alto wishing I could do more for them. A year ago, you expressed optimism that, as Kara Mirza has, uh, that a better day was coming in Russia, that there is going to be a post-Putin period when democracy will flourish there. And you, you associated yourself with that. Do you still feel as confident, even though the leaders who are so instrumental in that movement are now all, or not all, but, but many are in prison? And by the way, so many people who might have supported such a transition have left Russia. I mean, there's yes. this out-migration of sort of professionals. and Yes. So in some ways, the base is leaving. That's right. And I was thinking, you, you were mentioning that roundtable that you and I and President Obama did with these Russian leaders. I think of the seven or eight that were in the room at the time, David, only two still live in Russia. So to your point, Nemtsov is killed. Gary Kasparov was there, if you remember mm-hmm. him. He lives of in New course. York. Ilya Panamaryov was there. He's now in Ukraine. Two others have left in Lithuania. So you're absolutely right. You know, their leaders have left or in jail. And then their base, you know, the young, educated, urban electorate, hundreds of thousands of them have left too. Um, so it's a more depressing picture than the last time we talked. And I would add to this, this has been hard for me, that I toggle between talking to Ukrainians in Kiev and opposition folks and personal friends of mine from Russia every day. And I was always trying to make the argument this is Putin's more, not Russia's, not all Russians supported. I want to be honest with you. That's harder for me to say today than the last time we talked because a lot of Russians are, you know, Putin can't kill everybody and he's not killing them. It's Russians killing them. Uh, and he has support inside the country. And so I'm less optimistic about, I think he's done a lot of damage to that society that I had not fully appreciated how deep and damaging it is. 20 years of, you know, neo-nationalist propaganda has an effect. And, and that's something that I've had to come to terms with. Debates about visa bans for Russians, for, for instance, right? I've, I've changed my views on that. And yet, um, in the long run, I'm still cautiously optimistic. Uh, one, because I'm just an optimistic guy. And so this is not scientific at all. I was just born in Montana and Montanans are, we're optimistic people. And so, uh, um, and when you deal with the Navalny family, uh, you got to be optimistic and you got to have a sense of humor. And that's what they say. Uh, his daughter, Dasha, by the way, you, you, you know, you work with CNN. She just was on a, a great, um, special last, last Friday night on CNN and just listening to her sound optimistic about her dad. If she's still optimistic, I got to still be optimistic. Uh, but number two, now I'm putting my analytic hat on. Um, you know, Russians are, are one of the most educated, wealthiest societies in the world, still governed by a dictator. Um, over hundreds of years, not, not tomorrow, not the next year, not the next decade, maybe. But over hundreds of years, we know that the more well-to-do societies are, the more likely they are to become democratic and stay democratic. That's a famous theory from a former colleague of mine, Marty Lipset, here at Stanford. And the data is overwhelming, right? GDP per capita, if you take out the oil exporters, 18 of the top 20 countries in the world, they're democracies. Because there's something that goes with that, right? Property rights, no taxation without representation, uh, education, urbanization. This is, these are trends over hundreds of years that Russia is now the outlier of. And so I, I don't, I think Putin will probably stay in power as long as he's physically able. 
not predicting a revolution against him. But after he dies, I don't see the juice for a Putinism for 20 more years. There's no heir apparent. There's no political party. The ideas of Putinism are not that great. Uh, and I just think there's a lot of quiet people inside Russia, the economic elites, uh, that just, you know, we've had enough of this. I don't, I'm not making a prediction, but, but what's the crazier prediction? 20 years from now, a Putin like figure will still be in power or there'll have been some change. I think the first prediction is the crazier of the two. Well, you know what? We're going to keep on having these conversations until we get the answers. So okay. Mike McFall, it's always great to be with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.